This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Kelly McGonigal. Kelly is a health psychologist and an award-winning lecturer at Stanford University. As a leading expert on the mind-body relationship, her work integrates psychology, neuroscience, and medicine with contemplative practices of mindfulness and compassion from Buddhism and yoga. She's the author of The Willpower Instinct and Yoga for Pain Relief. With Sounds True, Kelly has newly created a six-session audio learning program called The Neuroscience of Change, a compassion-based program for personal transformation, where she weaves the newest findings of science with Eastern contemplative wisdom to give listeners a revolutionary process for personal transformation. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Kelly and I spoke about what is known as the default setting of the brain and how we can change this default setting. We also spoke about how we have two minds living in one brain and the battle that can sometimes ensue between these two parts of our mind. We talked about what it might mean when we're triggered emotionally or in a difficult panic situation to quote-unquote surf the urges and tune deeper into ourselves at a physiological level. We also talked about how self-criticism can actually hinder behavior change and how saying affirmations that you don't believe can actually have a negative effect. Kelly also shared with us a practice for cultivating self-compassion when at first you can't feel any self-compassion at all. Here's my very intriguing and I would say cutting-edge conversation with Dr. Kelly McGonigal. Kelly, when it comes to the neuroscience of change, I know there's a lot to say about the topic, but I want to start, just in case maybe our listeners only have 10 minutes, I want to get right to it, which is, if I have a bad habit and I want to change it, how do I do it? What are the most important things you can tell me? I think that the absolute basis of any type of change is self-compassion, and that is not where most of us start. Most of us start from a place of feeling like there's something fundamentally wrong or broken with who we are, and we look for some sort of strength inside of ourselves to correct or fix or even punish that part of ourselves, um, and that almost always backfires. Uh, and the solution is to actually to um, begin to, to find the part of ourselves that really wants the benefits of the change 
uh, and is not identified with things like habits uh, or cravings or, or even the stress that often drives us to our habits and to our cravings. Well, of course, beginning with self-compassion is not as easy as it sounds, but for the moment, let's pretend that I can do that, that I can identify some bad habit that I have, and I, I'm able to be loving towards myself. What's next? Awareness. Um, often I will have people who want to make a change commit to actually not making any change at all in the beginning, um, to start to get very curious about the process of how the habit is happening in your life, um, beginning to understand what are the things that trigger it, um, beginning to understand maybe what the value of the habit is, what role it's playing, or maybe what role it used to play and isn't playing anymore. Um, and to and that's a big part of self-compassion, actually, to have this attitude of curiosity to how things are already working. Um, because without that awareness, it, we, we can often start with strategies for change that, um, that actually aren't addressing the root of the habit or will just uh, sort of lead us back to the kind of stress that makes it difficult to change. Now, in your class at Stanford, what did you find students were most interested in changing about themselves? What were the habits that they most wanted to change? This is a class called The Science of Willpower, and um, people come in, it's actually, it's pretty consistent from year to year. The number one is always health and weight loss, which is something that so many people are struggling with. Um, but more recently, there have been a lot of people coming in who feel out of control in their relationship to some aspect of technology or culture. And it, it sounds silly, but uh, a number of people have been feeling addicted to reality TV, and that's been absolutely fascinating to me um, to think about uh, addictions to something something like that in our, our media and in our culture. Um, and a lot of people feeling addicted to their devices, to their Blackberries and their cell phones and their email, um, and feeling kind of out of control. And um, another thing that people are often very interested in changing is not so much these outer behaviors or these outer addictions, um, but feeling stuck in some kind of inner experience like anxiety um, or depression. That's helpful. And taking any one of these examples, whether it's addiction to technology or food or just chronic anxiety, I know your area of specialization is understanding the neuroscience behind making these changes and what keeps us stuck. Can you shed some light here? I know there's a lot to say, but what do you think are the most important discoveries from neuroscience that will help us make changes? One of the most interesting ideas that's been really helpful for me um, has been the idea that even though we have one brain, we actually have two minds. Uh, and that's because of how the human brain evolved over time. We have all of these systems in our brain that are designed to help us make automatic choices based on instinct, uh, survival instincts especially, um, as well as habit so that we don't have to use a lot of mental energy or resources to think about what we're doing. Uh, and then a little bit later on in our history, we evolved this, this overlapping system that actually allows us to regulate and control all of those survival instincts like stress or the desire to eat when you see food or, or mate with any sexual opportunity that comes up. 
Uh, and so we have all these other systems of the brain that evolve to help us regulate those other impulses when they aren't so helpful. And um, sort of who we are in any given moment turns out to be a, a product of which of those brain systems are dominant. And uh, some of the really interesting neuroscience studies, they put people in a brain scanner to see which systems are most activated. Uh, and you can predict a lot of the choices that people will make um, as well as the inner experiences that they'll have, like cravings, stress, emotion, even depression, um, just by looking at which of these systems are dominant. And um, the, great things about, the great thing about the wisdom traditions, uh, including practices of meditation and yoga, is that they actually teach us how to become more aligned with that, that mind or that version of ourselves where the areas of the brain that support conscious choice uh, and awareness and also self-compassion, are more activated. So just take me through it in a concrete way. Let's say I'm working with a technology addiction, let's just say. Mm -hmm. How would both of these minds relate to that differently? So the uh, technology actually triggers two different um, of these kind of instinctive systems of the brain. One is the reward center, which is the area of the brain that, uh, that evolved to make us want to chase out rewards, particularly food and sex. Um, but technology is really good at triggering the system of the brain. And um, when you maybe you see your phone or you get a little buzz that you have a new text message or an email, something like that, uh, you get a little burst of a neurotransmitter called dopamine in your brain. And the whole function of dopamine is to get your attention to... Um, to, and to create a sense of desire to seek out something that the brain now thinks is going to make it happy. And, you know, food does the same thing. Uh, a lot of the things that, that we get addicted to does the same thing to the brain. Um, so we've got this one, one part of the instinctive system here that is triggered by technology. And at the same time, uh, technology often triggers our stress center um, because we worry that maybe there's information we need to know or something that we're going to have to do. Uh, and we sometimes have this relationship to technology where it's, it's like an, um, an unlimited task that we can't keep up with. And when you've got both of those things going on at the same time in your brain, the desire to seek a reward and also stress and urgency, um, that's actually the perfect recipe for feeling out of control uh, and feeling addicted. And when we want to uh, change our relationship to technology, often the, the first thing to do is to bring a practice of mindfulness to those feelings that we have towards our devices. It's amazing to me how many people um, are in that kind of relationship to their technology, but it's a little bit below conscious awareness. Um, and when they start to attend to it, they start to realize that um, maybe these devices are not their best friends. Okay, so in terms of changing this relationship with technology, just to go further with this one example, and then we'll take a couple more. You know, I think I'm going to be the perfect candidate for all these examples because I have so many bad <laughs> habits, but certainly this is one of them, the technology habit. So I'm with you in terms of, you know, thinking that there will be a reward in this text message, and I'm with you in terms of the stress. And I'm also with you that I'm going to be compassionate because, I mean, clearly I have a lot in common with a lot of other people, and I'm not a terrible person because of this. And I'm going to be aware. I'm going to be aware of what's going on inside me, all the feelings that I have when I get these messages. But how am I changing, Kelly? I haven't made a change yet. 
you haven't made a change yet in your behavior, but you have made a change. And that's actually a really key point. When you bring mindfulness to a process, you're changing it because mindfulness itself is changing which of these systems in the brain are, are activated, are dominant. And this is something else that you see in neuroscience more broadly, not just with addictions, that as soon as you pay attention to a process, you are changing it. And I, I think that's fantastic news because sometimes we, we feel like we have to change our behaviors first. Um, and you actually are changing something pretty powerful when you start to pay attention to what's happening in your own brain and in your own body. Uh, so, that, so that change can actually give us a little bit of space and a little bit of clarity to then start experimenting with our behavior. And I really encourage people to think about experimenting rather than um, setting up really rigid rules for themselves um, because most people will fail when they try to make a change. So you might say, okay, I'm only going to check my, my email on my phone once an hour. Um, and that's sort of a first guess. You know, you said, hey, maybe that would improve the quality of my life. And you might discover it's completely impossible, at least for now. Um, and so, you know, the next step is setting up these little challenges for yourself where you're going to see, is it possible for me to make this small step, this change, and then to pay attention to uh, what happens when you do. Does it improve the quality of your life? Uh, is it a disaster if you go five hours without checking your email? Or is it actually not the kind of disaster that, that the stress center of your brain wanted you to believe it would be? Now, you mentioned that I have two minds within this one brain. So this second mind of mine has more free choice. Can you explain how that comes to play here in the example that we're working with? Well, absolutely. Um, so these systems of the brain are basically um, a bunch of related structures that help you pay attention to what's happening inside of yourself. So there's um, important structures for self-awareness, um, but they also keep track of your goals, and they keep in mind particularly the sort of the longer-term goals or the core values that you want to align your life with. And again, there are, there's even a specific region in the front of the brain, just about behind your eyeballs, whose uh, primary function is to remember what you want and not the want of needing to check your email or needing to eat a cookie, but the big wants, the big values. Um, and so when we're shifting into this mind state, which is often best triggered by mindfulness, uh, we're also gaining access to our own values and deepest goals, which is very helpful. Um, and then the same set of uh, structures near the front of the brain also help us control and plan our actions. So we're linking up self-awareness, motivation, and then action. Um, and that's, that's basically a recipe for being able to make a change. How do I strengthen that part of myself and that part of my brain that focuses on what I really, really want so that I can be inspired to make these kinds of changes? One of the practices that I teach is uh, a meditation practice that comes from the yoga tradition uh, in which you go into a state of mindfulness. And from that state of mindfulness and awareness, um, you ask yourself questions about what it is you really want. And you begin to put that into language. And you begin to put it into um, sensory images, what it feels like in your body, both what the, the kind of the, the, the longing or the heartfelt desire feels like in your body. And, and actually make a, a vow to yourself that you um, would like to make choices in your life that are consistent with that heartfelt desire 
uh, and with that, that core value. Um, and, of course, you can do this not in meditation, but meditation seems to be a really powerful place to do it because it's allowing you both greater insight into your motivation so that you're less likely to be distracted by, um, by desires that, that actually create more suffering. And, uh, and it also seems to be a good state of mind to really plant the seeds for future action. It seems, though, in any given moment, when I, you know, think of my mobile device and it's seductively beeping at me or looking at me even longingly, I haven't touched it for, you know, (laughs) however many hours or whatever, I'm looking longingly at it, that even if I've really strengthened this part of me that knows that what I want is to be available for real connection with the people that I'm actually with in the moment, not checking my device, that I could lose this battle, that there's like a battle between these two parts of me, this deeper wanting for peace and connection, and then this feeling I have of, you know, pick up the phone, I need to pick it up. How do I work that battle out? You know, I think many people have that experience of this kind of a a war of different parts of themselves. I mean, my first thought is that any experience that you bring awareness to is improved by that awareness. Uh, and that's going to be true even for this inner battle, and it's going to be true for the process of giving in. And um, I'm actually a big fan of giving in just with a little bit more awareness than you had yesterday. Um, and I think it's often it's a slow process of awareness that if you, if you are strengthening your motivation and your commitment, um, it becomes very difficult eventually to continue to engage in really self-destructive behaviors. And sometimes the habits that we set out to change actually are not as related to our happiness as we think they are. And, you know, sometimes it, it may be that it's not a big problem that we're checking our email. That, that may not actually be the big source of suffering in our lives. And that's another way that I, I, you know, like to think of this as being kind of an experimentation process, that we're being scientists with ourselves. Um, because I, I think when we're really in touch with our values and our motivation, and we are practicing awareness, um, it becomes almost impossible not to change. But if the change matters. Let's take another example and really help me understand the neuroscience, which I still think I feel a little shaky on. And in this case, it would be related to something that I think, you know, so many people find a challenge, which is losing weight and relating to food in a healthy way. Yeah, it's, it's basically the same problem as with technology. Um, part of it is it, almost all of the, the challenges that we face where we feel out of control, it's because the brain uh, likes to team up these two states of desperately wanting happiness and, uh, and stress and, and urgency and feeling unsafe or threatened. And um, it's kind of crazy to think about this, but a lot of the foods that are marketed to us are specifically designed to put our brains in that state where they're going to create a desire through some combination of smell, often a combination of salt and fat and sugar that is, is uh, going to make our brains go crazy with desire, not necessarily pleasure because in the brain, wanting and liking are two very distinct experiences. And a lot of the foods that are marketed to us um, create the experience of wanting more than actual satisfaction and pleasure. So we've got these smells, we've got these tastes that are making us want, and there's a kind of a promise of happiness. 
And at the same time, these same foods can, can trigger a stress response. And, uh, and if we don't give in to the desire, the brain will actually amp up the stress response and release more stress hormones so that you are uh, even more likely to want to seek out some kind of relief, which we often will find then in the same food that has triggered the whole process. I'm not following you exactly. Maybe you could give me an example of a type of food and how the food would be creating a stress response. I'm not getting that exactly. Sure. So let's take something like a typical fast food meal that is high in fat, high in sugar, and high in salt. Um, if you were to stare down whatever, whatever is your particular temptation of fast food, whether it's donuts or pizza or french fries, um, the, the very that the smells, the molecules are in going in through the nose and then being registered by the brain, um, the, it triggers the promise of reward in the brain, the, the reward system that says, it's, you know, you're not happy yet, but if you do this, you will be happy. And it triggers an entire um, uh, cascade of, of events in the brain, chemical events in the brain, that are going to motivate you toward consumption. So you've got a desire, and then it's pushing you toward consumption. And um, if you do not consume and continue consuming, the very presence of that food will also start to mount a, a stress response. It's part of what the reward system does, this release of stress hormones, because it's a survival mechanism. If you were back in, you know, in the wilderness and you saw a berry on a tree and it was like, really high and you were going to have to climb that tree, uh, if your desire were weak, you would not survive. You need to be motivated to take action. So, uh, so that berry is going to make you want to eat it, but it's also going to increase this, this sense of, of threat that uh, you're not going to feel okay until you do eat it. And so much of the food in our environment, um, particularly the high fat, the high sugar, and the high salt foods, um, are absolutely locking into that survival mechanism. The stress that I'm feeling, for example, when I smell French fries is the stress that I might not get to eat the French fries. I'm very worried right. and concerned Even about it. Right, even though when people actually pay attention to the experience of eating French fries, they often don't even like them. Uh, but the brain has this persistent lie that it's creating based on the, the activation of these brain systems that, that makes you continue to believe that you like French fries and they will make you happy if only you can eat enough of them. You know, one of my favorite studies actually looked at women who claimed to be chocoholics. You know, they said they were addicted to chocolate, they loved chocolate, it was fantastic. Um, put them into the study, monitored their heart, their heart rate, their blood pressure, monitored what was going on in their brain, even monitored what was happening with their eyeballs. And they found that when uh, when these women who professed to love chocolate were presented with chocolate, they actually had something that looked more like a physiological stress response. They did a startle reflex with the eyes, like they were like, whoa, and really paying attention in the same way we do uh, if we were to see a predator in the wild. Um, and they also, their heart rate went up and their blood pressure went up. And uh, when, when the researchers asked them, what are you feeling right now? Like, pay attention to exactly how you're feeling. Um, it was anxiety. It wasn't um, happiness that they were going to get to eat chocolate. And so this is one of the ways that mindfulness can be really helpful when we're dealing with food challenges because most of the time we, we have no idea that the thing itself is creating the anxiety cycle. Um, and we just we think we're anxious because we haven't made ourselves happy yet by consuming it. 
You know, it seems to me that sometimes when we're talking about really subtle habits of being, you mentioned anxiety as an internal state, it's almost like these reactions sneak up on us. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the first step is to be compassionate and the second is to bring awareness. But sometimes it seems like the really difficult internal states that take us over, they hijack us. It happens so quickly. Yes. I think that that is most people's experience. Um, Inner experiences are particularly interesting um, when we're trying to come up with strategies for change. Because unlike behaviors, which are relatively straightforward to control, I know it, they're not easy, but like the brain knows how to do it. If you want to reach for a cookie or not, your brain knows what signals to send to your hand to do it, or reach for your credit card or not. Like the brain knows what to do to control your actions. But our brains did not seem to evolve a very clear strategy for controlling the content of our thoughts and our emotions. Uh, and what's happening in our physical body, physical sensations like pain. And so when you look at the neuroscience of trying to change things, like anxiety or chronic pain or depression, um, the more you try to go in and stop them, the more likely they are to increase in strength and severity, uh, and, and they're even more likely to hijack your attention and your actions. And so... Um, in many ways, the strategy is the same, except we never really get to the part of trying to control. Uh, it really is just the self-compassion and the awareness that becomes the strategies for changing inner experiences. I'm curious for you, in terms of applying what you've discovered from neuroscience, what's been the, the hardest habits for you to change, personally, if you don't mind sharing with us? Um, for me, the, the biggest challenge has been anxiety and, and specific fears, a couple of kind of sticky fears. And one, um, one in particular is flying, which sounds funny because I fly all the time now. Um, but I guess I was always waiting for the fear to go away before I was willing to do it. And I was so afraid of the experience itself, the dread, the panic, um, that I would, do, I would do anything to structure my life so that I wouldn't have to have that inner experience, um, which means basically not flying. And, uh, and I, I thought, well, I'll just you know, like, somehow fix this inner experience and then I'll be able to change my actions. And um, it was actually through the, the practices of mindfulness and self-compassion and, um, and one of my meditation teachers talking to me about how you know, those, those inner experiences might never go away. Um, that allowed me to start trying other, other techniques. And one of the, the strategies that I use now for dealing with the fear that is still there and the dread and all of that um, is a technique that's taught in addiction recovery programs called surfing the urge, where you allow yourself to have this inner experience that you're having. In addiction, it's usually stress or cravings. Um, and for me, it's uh, the, the type of inner fear that makes me want to not not get on a plane or not live a life where, um, where you know, I have the freedom to do that. And uh, I surf those inner experiences in the same way that a recovering addict needs to surf the urge to smoke or to drink. And uh, the, the biggest lesson has been learning that those inner experiences, um, 
are something that I can handle rather than something I need to get rid of uh, so that I can change my actions. And that's something that the science shows is true for every conceivable type of inner experience uh, that people often think they need to fix before they're able to take, take a positive step in their lives. So when you say surfing the urge, can you tell me exactly what are you doing to help you get on the plane? Uh, well, you know, by the time I'm actually in the airport, this is not an issue. Would you believe it? The, actually, the, the panic starts when I'm at home thinking about booking a flight, um, which is one of the, the great things about change, is eventually the, the, uh, the experience does transform itself um, when you develop a kind of uh, trust in the whole process. So I'm no longer quite, you know, like white-knuckled in the... the um, airport waiting to board the plane, trying to talk myself onto it, although that was a part of the process. Um, but if, you know, if, it, if I were still in that moment of panic, uh, or if I were an, a recovering addict who's wanting to take that next drink, the, the process of surfing the urge is tuning in your attention to what's happening in your body. Uh, we tend to get lost in the story of it. Uh, so I might be imagining terrible scenarios or um, remembering air disasters, um, or, you know, I, I could get stuck in thoughts that are not going to be helpful. Uh, and to tune the attention to what's happening in the body and to start to experience those emotions or those cravings as like waves in the body, waves of energy or waves of feelings, waves of sensations. And to, to get out of the, the habit of being stuck in the content of it, that self-talk, um, and to go right into sensation. And I've also used this technique, by the way, to deal with chronic pain. Um, it's the same technique that's taught to help people deal with pain that, uh, that you can't fix by popping a pill or getting surgery. Um, and when you tune your attention into the sensations, you bring in the added support of the breath. And the breath is this great miracle. It, is, it creates a kind of inner space uh, in which even these very difficult experiences, like there's room for them, uh, and they become not quite so solid uh, and suffocating. And that's essentially the whole practice. And then the practice usually ends when you feel, when you feel a kind of like you're in that mental place of awareness of what's happening. Uh, there's some connection to center uh, and to the breath, remembering what your goals are and what your commitments are. You know, for me, it would be, going through with getting on a plane for an addict, it would be a commitment to not taking that drink uh, to the person who's in chronic pain. It may be that I'm going to get on with my life, even though the pain is still present and I'm worried about what will happen and if the pain will get worse. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you said something interesting, which is through the 
repetition of doing this practice, surfing the urge, that actually anxiety about flying doesn't come up for you in the same way that it used to. So I'm curious how much time or how many times do we need to repeat this practice before our habituated response starts to change? I think it's really individual. And what creates the change is this developing sense of inner trust. And that can be either very rapidly acquired or very difficult um, to tap into. Uh, I mean, there have been studies that that have been done using uh, a wide range of uh, addictions and psychological disorders where these types of strategies um, are radically transforming people's lives in as little as eight weeks, um, which tends to be the the usual uh, length of studies that use these interventions. So in as short as eight weeks, people are, um, are feeling more in control of their behavior. They are feeling less overwhelmed by their emotions, even if the thoughts and emotions are still present. So that gives me hope that actually this process of change, and we're not talking about 80 years, um, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's any process of change is going to be kind of up and down, even as we're building these new habits and building a sense of, of self-trust that we can handle the difficult inner experiences, we'll have experiences, other experiences in our lives that can re-trigger old habits and re-trigger old anxieties. And that's something else that uh, I, we need a lot of self-compassion around, that we can think we've, we've kicked this habit or we are so over that old belief system or those old anxieties and then something happens in our life and it's like the rug is pulled out from under us and we're back where we thought we would never be again. Um, and when that happens, it's, it's so important to go back to that foundation of self-compassion um, because otherwise we can end up feeling now not just sort of back to square one, but also um, a, a sense of despair. Now, you mentioned that part of the key is developing inner trust. Can you explain what you mean by that, inner trust, how that's part of this process? Yeah. I mean, most of the behaviors that we want to change, whether uh, it's eating or addictions or procrastination uh, or a lot of the emotions that we want to get rid of, um, it's because we feel like we can't handle the discomfort that we're trying to fix with the behaviors or control by, um, by getting rid of emotions or, or constructing a life where we think we won't end up feeling those emotions. And, uh, and the more that we believe that we can't handle that discomfort, whether it's a craving or withdrawal or stress or anxiety or loneliness or hunger, the more we think we can't handle that and we need to fix that discomfort immediately, uh, the more stuck we get in chasing the relief from it. And so a lot of the times, the, you know, the best strategy is to kind of hunker down with the discomfort uh, and get to know it. Um, I use the word befriend a lot in, in my classes, the idea of befriending these, um, these uncomfortable experiences that we would otherwise construct our whole lives to avoid having. It's interesting because the core of what you're offering as a strategy for change that you're saying neuroscience supports, I would summarize the key ideas, compassion, self-compassion, and awareness. And even this, you know, being with, befriending what's actually happening 
in an embodied way, in a physiological way. But what about all of the approaches to change? I'm curious what you think neuroscience has to say about these approaches that take a radically different angle. Like, before I get on the plane, I'm going to say something like, I love flying, I love flying, I love flying, I love being in the air. I'm going to repeat this over and over again. Does that work? Um, boy, I don't know if that would work for me. Uh, here's what I think. That it's, it's never helpful to lie to yourself um, because the, the brain's not going to buy that. But it may be true that you love the, the consequences of being willing to fly. Or it's, maybe you don't love broccoli, but you love the consequences of eating a healthier diet. And I actually think that is a better strategy um, when you're trying to talk yourself into something or out of something, um, because we don't have to love every single moment of our lives. And that's, you know, that realization is what often allows us to make difficult changes, that it's okay if I have a dinner that I didn't love as much as, you know, my brain thinks it would love a fast food meal, because what I really love is the feeling I have in my body when I'm healthier, and what that allows me to do in the same way that I don't love being on a plane, but I love the life that I have because I'm willing to travel and how that allows me to connect with others and, uh, and, and be of use and be of service. So You're talking um, about strengthening that part of the brain that you mentioned. That's yeah. that part that is what we really value the most. But I'm curious, though, just from what you know about the research, because, you know, there's a lot of audio programs and seminars, etc., on changing your thoughts, positive thinking, mm-hmm. that this is the way to make change in your life. And I'm curious if you think that works or when it might work or when it wouldn't work. Yeah. Well, there's some, some research showing that um, affirmations can backfire if you don't believe that they're true. Um, so saying something like, I love myself, I'm wonderful, um, for people who doubt that, it actually makes them feel worse. And it, it further lowers... Um, self-esteem and self-confidence and, and, and depresses them. Um, so, you know, like that's not where I would start. Uh, at the same time, in, in all the wisdom traditions, um, you see a, a practice of turning your attention toward the opposite of destructive um, states of mind or destructive beliefs uh, or emotions. And I think that rather than um, sort of blindly choosing optimistic affirmations, uh, it's really about turning your attention to an opposite that's already present. So with the example of fear, I don't need to tell myself I love flying, um, but I can turn my attention to the fact that I also have courage. Like they're both true at the same time. I can be afraid and I can also have courage. And um, meditation practices and mental practices that allow us to affirm something that is true um, are going to be very helpful. And that's, if that's a little bit different to say, you know what, I have courage and I have the capacity to do this scary thing is different than saying something like, I'm not afraid. But it sounds like the key thing you're saying, which of course makes sense to me, you know, Miss Sounds True, is that you have to believe whatever it is you're affirming. You have to really believe it. You do. And I, I mean, you can you can practice your way into a more sense of a more genuine sense of connection. Um, I mean, there's, I, I, there's some benefit to the fake it till you make it kind of practice. I, I have had teachers who have um, encouraged me to um, use, for example, 
uh, mantras uh, in compassion practices, for example, where maybe you don't feel undying gratitude towards this person as a benefactor, but just try out the phrase in your mind and, and see how it feels to, in your own mind, thank them for being a, a benefactor. Um, and, it, you know, to me, that's that, that uh, what you're strengthening is a willingness. And it doesn't have to be exactly like an affirmation where you say, you know what, I want to have the thought that, or I want to have the belief or emotion that. So I'm going to try it on now as a way of planting the seed. Um, and, and that's a way that affirmations can work when what you, you feel like what you're strengthening is your willingness to choose that state of mind. And then in terms of behavior change, what do you think about the approach of simply saying, you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to make a vow. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to swear up and down. I'm not going to eat this food or I'm not going to pick up my mobile device for X. I mean, just pure, you know, straight ahead. I'm not going to do it. Behavior change. Um, well, if it's not preceded with things like motivation and awareness, um, it usually doesn't work, at least not in the long term. But I mean, that's the great thing about making behavioral changes is that you start with some of these mental practices and, and mindsets, and then you do have to commit to something. So I think that all the strategies that ask you to make specific commitments are right on. And in fact, there is a little bit of neuroscience supporting um, practices of setting behavioral commitments. So if I want to improve my health, um, it's going to be easier for my brain to remember my motivation if I've also said something like, I, I, I vow to eat one vegetable at every meal, or uh, I'm going to exercise for 10 minutes in the morning before I take my shower. And, um, and making those behavioral commitments helps us remember our motivation and eventually become a habit. So you need to do both, but I, I think when you focus only on the behavior first and you just try to control yourself like a joystick, um, I, I think people will run out of, of, uh, of the energy to sustain that. So, you know, I want to talk more about the compassion part of this approach to transformation that you're advocating, because it's where we began our conversation. And I actually think it's one of the things that's hardest for people to do. And so what are your suggestions to someone who's listening, let's say, and they have quite a large hurdle to feeling compassionate for themselves about whatever they think is a, a negative habit that they want to change. The practice that I love for cultivating self-compassion is actually to bring to mind all of the other people on the planet who are suffering from whatever it is that you're dealing with now, whether it's physical pain or an addiction or anxiety or, or any challenge in your life, and to, to bring to mind all of those countless other people who know what it's like to feel what you're feeling and who are feeling it right now, along with you. Uh, and often when we do this, a kind of instinctive compassion wells up when we think about other people suffering in the way that we're suffering. And we can use that compassion as the basis for feeling compassion, finding compassion for ourselves. Uh, and in that moment, um, you can say something like, may we all be free from this, or uh, may my willingness to, to be with this, may that in some way provide strength uh, and freedom from suffering for all of the other countless people who are suffering in the same way right now. 
And in my teaching, this is a practice that has been similarly profound um, for people dealing with many different types of challenges. It's often easier to feel compassion for others than it is to feel compassion for ourselves. And we don't actually need to separate the two. It's often by remembering our, our common humanity with others uh, and the fact that our own challenges and suffering don't isolate us from others. They actually connect us to others. Uh, that can be the way into finding compassion. And what do we know from neuroscience about compassion, whether it's self-compassion or compassion for others? There haven't been a lot of studies, but there have been a couple. Um, self-compassion is an interesting example because it's been contrasted with self-criticism in the brain. And uh, when we're being very self-critical of ourselves, uh, it activates areas of the brain that are associated with punishment, threat, and uh, inhibition, as if you're trying to prevent yourself from making another mistake. And so literally the brain starts to shut you down. Uh, and self-compassion looks very different. It activates the areas of the brain that are associated with um, connection with others, the same areas that you would see activated when uh, you know, a mother is with her child or um, when you're with friends and family that you care about. Uh, and when you feel connected and safe, self-compassion activates that system of the brain. And it also activates uh, systems of the brain that are important for self-awareness. And that is so helpful. It's one of the reasons why self-compassion um, makes it easier to make a change because when you're feeling safe with yourself, uh, it is easier to see what's actually happening in the present moment, including um, what you are thinking and feeling uh, and doing. In my own experience, it seems that there are sometimes these sort of deep holes of, you could say, shame or self-loathing, really sort of just deep drop-offs, and that it's almost such a habituated pattern, it feels like, in the brain, in my mind, that I could sort of just go down the drain like that. And I'm wondering, from the research that you've seen, are there things like that, like almost like there's a rut in the brain that can sometimes, you know, it has to be the right trigger, and it, but for the right person in, in the right moment, the right trigger, before you know it, they're just sort of down the drain, like it's a, a groove in their brain that's been well-worn. Yeah, I had a meditation teacher who used to say, no matter where you start, when you let your mind wander, it's a fast track to hell. You'll always end up in the same place. Um, and it, it turns out that that's actually not too far off when you look at the neuroscience. Um, for a long time, neuroscientists thought that when you weren't focused on something, your brain was resting. It was just quiet. Uh, but what neuroscientists have found now is that when you are not focused on the present moment, the mind defaults to um, certain activities and a whole network of structures in your brain that are specialized in finding fault with yourself, uh, finding fault with others, imagining better uh, alternative realities, uh, thinking about the past, all the stuff that we think of as uh, really creating a lot of the suffering of the mind, that turns out to be the default state of the brain when you are not focused on either uh, a specific action or any other aspect of the present moment. And uh, neuroscientists aren't entirely sure why this is the default state of the brain, but it's the same for almost everyone. And one of the best um, sort of neural signatures of depression uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder and other anxiety disorders is the degree to which 
people are um, easily seduced into this brain state and find it harder to come out of it. That even when they try to attend the present moment, the brain keeps sliding back into this default state of finding something wrong with yourself or, or with life as it is. Well, then, of course, my goal is to create a new default state. Is that possible? Yes, it is possible. And this is, again, really exciting emerging science. And um, it probably won't surprise you that mindfulness training is the way to do it. Um, And scientists have started to find that among people who have even a little bit of mindfulness training, that there can be this other default state that is less about um, evaluation And, of course, the brain has a bias to usually evaluate negatively. So it's less about evaluation than it is about direct experience. And people who go through mindfulness training, you can actually see a shift in the brain from this uh, fault-finding and evaluating state into a direct experience, particularly a direct experience of the, the physical aspects of the present moment. The brain pays more attention to sensations and less to the stories. Uh, And that change to a default state that is based on sort of sensory awareness rather than stories, uh, in one study actually predicted um, reductions in depression among people who were clinically depressed at the beginning of the eight-week mindfulness training. So when you say, you know, it might not take that much mindfulness training, are are you thinking eight weeks is kind of the amount that you need to put in to really be able to make a shift? Well, I think that it's an adequate dose for making some really important changes. Um, and I say that based on both the science and the fact that a lot of the courses I teach are eight weeks long. So I, I've seen it in practice. Um, but also, if you look at the science or you just spend time with people who are uh, very long-term practitioners, uh, it's obvious that, that over time we can strengthen these things much more. Um, and so... It's kind of it's nice to have the optimism to know that you can you can receive benefits very early on in practice, um, but also to know that the process continues to unfold. In our discussion, you've underscored how neuroscience confirms things that the wisdom traditions have always offered as their greatest tools, you know, compassion and awareness. But I'm curious, has neuroscience, shown us anything that the great traditions didn't know from internal observation? Hmm. That's a really good question. I'm trying to think if there is. I feel like that the research on the default state has been helpful not that it's contradicting the wisdom traditions, but, um, for example, there's research showing the default state in chimpanzees, right? So not just humans, uh, but actually that, that other animals and other species have a similar tendency to fall into this mind state. And I feel like sometimes seeing that research, um, it can give us such a sense of relief about the fact that this is a difficult thing to change. And, and while the science and the wisdom traditions give us some, you know, some hope, uh, I feel sometimes like what the science is doing is not so much telling us something we didn't know, but is providing that, that um, self-compassion that can be hard to find. And, and particularly uh, in the community where I teach, where there are a lot of people who are um, swayed by evidence, sometimes just showing a picture of the brain. Say, you know, this is what it looks like when you're being self-critical and why it's not helpful. 
it's not like we didn't know it wasn't helpful, but just to see it somehow can, can uh, help us recognize that, that there isn't something fundamentally broken with us, that, that all human beings uh, have these experiences. And so I feel like that's what the science adds for a lot of people. Just a couple more questions, but it seems like a lot of people actually have this misunderstanding that their self-criticism will help them change, that they're sort of, you know, they're you know, holding the high bar for themselves or something like that. And, and really what you're saying is that the science tells us this isn't true. Well, yes, the science tells us this is definitely not true. In fact, there was a, a recent set of studies that, um, that tracked people over time who had set specific goals. Some were trying to lose weight. Some were trying to become better musicians. Some were trying to, um, to finish an academic degree. And uh, so they followed these people over time, and they also tracked over time how self-critical they were. And there was a direct relationship between self-criticism and success over time. The people who are more, uh, who are harder on themselves uh, succeeded less. And not just by self-report. It's not like they were saying, oh, I'm so hard on myself. I don't feel like I did a good job. It's, it was objective um, outcomes like pounds lost. Um, and that was just one set of, of really interesting studies. But there is abundant evidence um, from every type of challenge you can think about uh, in the addiction literature it, with dealing with anxiety and depression that the, the harder you are on yourself um, for having the problem in the first place and for being unable to fix it immediately, uh, the more likely you are to spiral back deeper into the problem, to turn back to a drink, to kind of soothe your feelings for for how guilty and ashamed you are about having to drink or to food when you're feeling uh, ashamed about overeating or being overweight. And uh, self-compassion does exactly the opposite, sends us right in the right direction. And just a final question, Kelly, which is here you are right in the midst of what we could say is uh, such an exciting time in the field of neuroscience combined with the discoveries of wisdom traditions, this intersection. What are the questions that you're asking that research is being done right now to uncover? One of the, the things that we're looking at, so we're doing studies looking at teaching compassion and self-compassion practices to the general public. And one of the things that I've experienced in more contemplative environments um, is that these practices can can be um, very difficult for people in the beginning before they become transformative. And there's a sort of a, that we kind of open ourselves up before we can um, find freedom from whatever the seeds of suffering are. And that's something that we haven't seen in the scientific literature, much discussion about the fact that some of these meditation practices, they don't always make you happy immediately. And that sometimes, if you look at previous research, there's a lot of selling that's going on, that these practices will make everyone happy and everyone healthy. And so we're starting to look at, you know, who does this help and when and what's the trajectory? Um, and are there difficult experiences that people go through when they begin a meditation practice? And is that an important part of the process? Or is there something that we can do to actually minimize that? And um, I'm looking forward to finding out. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's very helpful. I also want to hear what those studies tell us. I mean, I think that one of the things that confirms people's self-judgment is that they 
don't think that their meditation practice should be uncovering such difficult material. They think there must be something wrong with them. Yeah. You know, meditation is supposed to make yeah. me peaceful, etc., and I feel worse temporarily. That is a big part of the, the studies that we're conducting, is helping people understand that meditation is not some escape. Um, and that often you'll see things, and, and you know, the, the more that we cultivate these qualities of mindfulness and self-compassion, the more room there is for stuff to show up. And that seems to be a kind of law of nature, that when we get more spacious, more things show up. Uh, and then we develop the strength to be with the stuff that shows up. So you're exactly right, and that's something we talk about every single week in, in the, um, the program that we're studying, um, to help people understand that... Uh, you don't have to be good at meditating, and uh, meditation also isn't going to be some kind of blissful escape from the reality of life. Wonderful. I've been speaking with Kelly McGonigal. She is the creator of a new audio learning series with Sounds True, The Neuroscience of Change, a compassion-based program for personal transformation. Kelly, thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. It's quite a pleasure. So glad to know you're doing the work that you're doing. And I have to say, it's so exciting to hear your voice on my phone because I've been listening to you on Sounds True programs for so long. Um, I, I just am really grateful that, uh, that you and others at Sounds True brought me on. Wonderful. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.